Okay, welcome back to Sundays in July. The name of this seminar is A Ransom for All, question mark, reconciling universal language with a particular atonement. And standing in the stream of the Protestant Reformation, we at Grace Community Church believe that the Bible teaches the doctrine of particular redemption, the the controversial doctrine that Jesus atoned for the sins of only God's elect people and not all people without exception. And this seminar aims to answer the significant objection to that doctrine. Well, how can you believe in a particular redemption when the Bible says that Jesus died for all and for the whole world? Now, in affirming the doctrine of particular redemption, I always sense a strong burden to say that the point of believing that Jesus died to save the elect alone is not to celebrate that there are people for whom Christ did not die. The point is not to emphasize the exclusion of some from the saving will of God. No, the point is to safeguard the atonement from being robbed of what makes it precious and sweet to us sinners who need a perfect redemption to stake all our hope and confidence upon. What do I mean? Well, there are ways of thinking about the cross that unintentionally and maybe even subconsciously fundamentally alter the very character of what the cross is. And those ways of thinking are so popular. Well, Jesus died for everybody. Christ atoned for the sins of the whole world. Oh, well, then why isn't everybody saved? Does does that mean the whole world will escape punishment for their sins and go to heaven? And the response comes back, no, no, I'm not a universalist. I mean, Jesus himself says that people go to eternal destruction. So Jesus' death doesn't save people. Well... He died to provide salvation. He died to make it possible for everyone to be saved. But those who don't believe in Him, uh, they forfeit that salvation that was provided. Okay, so Jesus died to make it possible for sinners to be saved, but not to save sinners. Is that right? And, And sinners' unbelief overrules Jesus' intent to save them. You see, at the beginning, it sounds good, and it sounds magnanimous, and it sounds even loving to say, Jesus died to save everyone. But when you tease out the implications of a universal atonement, you recognize that if you universalize the extent of atonement without universalizing the extent of salvation, you empty the cross of its saving power. You make something other than Christ's death the decisive and determinative cause of salvation. And that is not good news for sinners. But when you proclaim the Bible's teaching that though Jesus does not die for every single individual without exception, every single one he does die for is by that very death infallibly assured to be saved from sin and brought home to heaven, well, then you begin to taste the sweetness of the doctrine of particular redemption. And you recognize that the atonement 
does not need faith added to it to give it its saving power, but that atonement of itself is so savingly powerful that it purchases the very faith that unites us to Christ and all the blessings of salvation in Him, well, then you begin to feel the strength of the cross. Then you can rest your whole soul on the cross. Then you see the glory of a perfect redemption. And so that's my burden as a believer in particular redemption, to protect the power and the glory and the sweetness of the cross from the unlikely enemy of a universal atonement, which undermines all those things. Now, I realize that I've just assumed particular redemption here, but I have made the positive case for it in a couple of different formats. Uh, For Sundays in July 2017, I did a seminar called Invincible Atonement, where I summarized the biblical case for particular redemption. Uh, You can download that from the Grace Church website. But also, last year in Grace Life, I did a 13-part series on the design, nature, and extent of the atonement. I called it, Oh, Perfect Redemption. And in that series, we found that particular redemption maintains the unity of the Trinity in salvation, that it fits most cohesively with an atonement designed to save sinners rather than merely to provide salvation or make people savable, that it upholds the Bible's teaching on the nature of the atonement as an efficacious saving accomplishment rather than a potentially inefficacious provision that it best explains the atonement as a work of Christ's high priestly ministry, which is unmistakably particularistic, and given all those truths, that particular redemption fits best with the inherently particularistic biblical metaphors for atonement, like a shepherd laying his life down for his sheep and a husband laying his life down for his bride. And so if you're interested in hearing those arguments fleshed out, and seeing how they do, in fact, support the biblical teaching of particular redemption, I refer you to that series. If you're really interested, I've, I've written a, a, quite an extensive book, and you can get that from me, or you can get it in the bookstore. Um, now, all that being said, it, it simply cannot be ignored that Scripture also casts the scope of Christ's death in universalistic terms. 1 Timothy 2.6 says that Christ gave Himself as a ransom for all. 1 John 2.2 says Christ is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for those of the whole world. And so any legitimate defense of particular redemption must explain how this kind of universalistic language doesn't contradict particularism. And further, if it can be shown that when terms like all and world are interpreted in, the, in their contexts, that they don't refer to absolutely all people without exception, well, then the case for a universal redemption is shown to be without merit. And so this morning, we're going to look at several universalistic texts that are offered, often offered in support of universal atonement, and my aim will be to interpret them in their contexts and to demonstrate how not one of them teaches a universal atonement. None of them contradicts the doctrine of particular redemption. And in fact, we'll see how they all complement and in some cases positively reinforce the case 
for particular redemption. But I want to issue one caveat before we begin. I know that many will be tempted to hear this message as me trying to explain away several passages of the Bible, and I plead with you not to hear it that way. What I am saying today must be taken in the context of the positive biblical argumentation that I refer to in those previous series and in, this, in the book that I've written. At first blush, it seems these texts seem to contradict that biblical argumentation. But because Scripture is inerrant, because it's ultimately authored by a single divine mind, well, there cannot be any contradictions. And so I'm aiming to show that how, how passages that sound contradictory on first blush only sound that way because we're reading them superficially rather than in context and according to the intent of the author. All right, well, with that, let's get into it. And as we come to our first set of texts, uh, we need to make an observation. And this set of texts I'm talking about are texts that contain the word all in them. And, and so the, the observation we need to make at the outset is that all is not self-interpreting. I don't think anything sabotages the fruitfulness of discussing the extent of the atonement more than the unwarranted assumption that the plain or natural meaning of the term all is all without exception. It's all too common in this discussion to hear assertions that all means all, and that's all all means. And, and, that, you know, and that kind of assertion assumes what needs to be proven, right? Because when you say all means all, that second instance of the word all, you assume to mean all without exception. But that's the thing that you need to prove because Scripture often uses the term all to mean something other than all people or all things without exception. In fact, all is much more often used to mean all without distinction or all kinds, all of some sorts or some of all sorts. But there are several instances in Scripture where the term all cannot mean all without exception. So, for example, in Genesis 6.13, God says to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me. But, of course, it wasn't the case that every living thing without exception perished in the flood. Noah and his family, as well as the animals on the ark, survived the flood by God's gracious design. All flesh evidently does not refer to absolutely all without exception. In Acts 2.17, Peter quotes God's prophecy to Joel where God says, I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. And literally the term is upon all flesh. But again, such a universalistic expression is limited by the context. God will not send His Holy Spirit to indwell or give gifts to people, all people without exception. Only those who are in Christ are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, Ephesians 1.13. And so here in Joel 2, all mankind refers to the people of Christ in Acts chapter 2, the people of Christ from all nations rather than from Israel alone. In Romans 5.18, Paul says, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. But are all with all men without exception justified? 
forgiven, sins taken away, righteousness of Christ imputed? No, we know from other passages like Matthew 7, 13, that the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. And so, in fact, not all men without exception are justified. And so what does Paul mean in context of Romans 5, 18? Well, that he means just as Adam brought condemnation to all who were united to him, so also Christ will bring justification to all who are united to him. But not all without exception are united to Christ. My personal favorite is Romans 14, 2, where Paul is discussing Christian liberty and food choices, and he says, one person has faith that he may eat all things. Now, obviously, the sense here is limited to those things which are edible. Paul is not speaking of someone having faith to eat iron nails or steel pipes. And we could go on. Not all without exception will hate Christ's disciples. The Corinthians did not enjoy all knowledge without exception as if they were omniscient. In other passages, it's, also, it's so evident that all doesn't mean all without exception that translators add the words kinds of to their translation. So Luke 11.42 says that the Pharisees tithed literally every herb. But that doesn't mean that the Pharisees gave every vegetable that has ever existed throughout the history of the earth to God. It likely didn't even refer to every herb that would have been available in that part of the world at that time. And so the translators judiciously translate the intent of this verse as every kind of garden herb. In Acts 10.12, Luke reports that Peter saw in his vision, literally, all the four-footed animals. All the four-footed animals without exception in the history of the world? No, no. I mean, Peter wasn't there for, you know, days upon days. No, many faithful translations like the NASB, ESV, New King James, the Net Bible, the NIV, and yes, the LSB, render the verse... And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals. And in 1 Timothy 6.10, Paul writes, the love of money is literally a root of all the evils. But is the love of money the root of the evil of sexual lust, of disobedience to parents, of blasphemy? I suppose it could be in all those situations, but every instance? No. And so many translations properly render that phrase a root of all sorts of evil, as in the NASB, or all kinds of evil, as in the Christian Standard Bible in the New King James. So it's plain that all doesn't always mean all without exception by default, which means that all is not self-interpreting. Like anything else, universal language must be properly interpreted according to its context and consistently with the rest of scriptural teaching. There are times when all does mean all without exception, though admittedly those are significantly in the minority. Much more, though, the sense of all in scripture is all without distinction or all kinds that recognizing that is not forcing your theology on the text to override the plain meaning of the exegesis. That is the plain sense of the text over and against a superficial reading of the text. 
You say, how do you defend that? Where does the Bible distinguish between all without exception and all without distinction? Aren't those just extra-biblical categories imposed on the text? Well, no. Both of those designations are derived from the text of Scripture itself. So in 1 Corinthians 15, 27, Paul quotes Psalm 8, 6, where God is said to have subjected all things to man. And Paul applies that to Jesus when in the eschaton, all things are put into subjection to him. But Paul doesn't want to be misunderstood as saying that the Father himself also will be put into subjection to the Son. And so he qualifies the universalistic language and he tells his readers that it doesn't have an absolutely universal sense. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. The Father is accepted from the all things that are put into subjection to the Son. And so Paul is saying the all things of Psalm 8, 6 does not mean all things without exception. And then we see the category of all without distinction in the Scripture as well. You can see it there in Romans 3, 22 and 23. I'm going to skip that for the sake of time and just give you the stronger uh, evidence in Romans 10, verses 11 and 12, where Paul says, the Scripture says, all those believing in Him will not be disappointed. All those believing in Him will not be disappointed, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all. Now, Paul says the same Lord is Lord of all. And while it's true that Jesus exercises sovereign lordship over every creature as king of the universe, Paul's point in this passage is that Jesus is the Lord, verse 11, of those believing in him. It is his saving lordship that's in view in this context. And so Paul's point is this. It's not like the Jews have one Lord and the Gentiles have another Lord. The same Lord is Lord of all. And then he actually says, for there is no distinction. So Jesus is not the saving Lord of all without exception. Otherwise, all are are saved. Jesus is the Lord of all without distinction, Gentiles as well as Jews. And so all without exception and all without distinction are biblical categories that ought to be brought to bear on the exegesis of universalistic language. We put it this way in biblical doctrine. All is not a self-defining expression. While it may legitimately be understood to speak of every person who has ever lived, that is all without exception, it may also legitimately be understood to speak of all kinds of people throughout the world all without distinction. The proper interpretation of all depends on the context together with the exegetical conclusions of the rest of Scripture. And I hope to prove to you that when the all passages marshaled against particular redemption are subjected to sound contextual exegesis, none of them supports an unlimited atonement or universal intentions in the atonement alongside particular ones. With that, let's get to the text themselves. We'll spend more time on some of these than others. We'll start with this first one, which is, I think, relatively less time, but John 12, 32. There, Jesus declares, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, which speaks of his 
crucifixion and his atoning death, as the next verse tells us. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Now, proponents of universal atonement teach that the phrase all men refers to all without exception. They say that this drawing refers to a universal wooing. It invites everyone to believe in Christ, but it's ultimately ineffectual because God must respect the creature's free will. God's not going to force anybody to believe in him. He wants to, he's a gentleman and he wants to, you to love him freely, right? But scripture never speaks of such an ineffectual universal drawing. The only drawing that almighty God does is the effectual calling of regeneration. John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And besides this, the context favors interpreting all men as all without distinction rather than all without exception. A few verses earlier in John 12, 20 to 21, John reports that there were some Greeks who were asking to see Jesus. And in response to this, Jesus explains that he must die in verses 22 to 28, and then he declares that by his death, he will draw all men to himself, by which he means not only his Jewish countrymen, not only the people of God, the old covenant people of God, the nation of Israel, as was expected, but even Gentiles, like those who were asking to see him. You see, all men in this text means all kinds of people, both Jews and Gentiles alike. It does not mean all people without exception. The only ones drawn to Christ are those who are eventually saved by Christ, namely the elect alone. Second, appeal is often made to 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, where Paul writes, for the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Those who deny particular redemption claim that the phrase, he died for all, indicates that Christ died for all people without exception. But that interpretation is not without significant problems. Paul immediately follows that statement by saying, Therefore, that is, because Christ died for them, all died. Don't miss this. Christ's death on behalf of all affects the death of those for whom he died. But in what sense can it be said that all those for whom Christ died have died as a result of his death? Well, We have died with Christ in his death for us, he being the head and we being the body, such that his death to sin counts as our death to sin. Colossians 2.20 says, uh, speaks of believers having died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world. Colossians 3.3 says, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Romans 6, 1 to 3 says that in union to Christ, we have died to sin. And then in 2 Corinthians 5.15, it says that we have died to ourselves and now live for Christ. So the point of the passage is that Christ's death for his people effects 
their spiritual death to sin and self in union with him. But can those things be said of all without exception? Have all without exception died with Christ to the elementary uh, principles of the world? Can even those who finally perish in hell say that their life is hidden with Christ in God? No, only the elect can be said to have died to sin and self in union with Christ. And so only the elect are in view in this verse. And more than that, Christ not only died for His people, but He was also raised on their behalf. Verse 15 says, If union with Christ in His death necessarily affects the spiritual death of those for whom He died, it must also be the case that union with Christ in His resurrection necessarily affects their spiritual resurrection as well. And Paul says exactly this in Romans 6, 5, for if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So there is no such thing as union with Christ in his death without union with Christ in his resurrection. But unless hell is empty, You can't say that all people without exception have died to themselves, have been raised to newness of life, and now live for Christ. No, what's happening here is that Paul is using the language of corporate solidarity that the one died for the many to emphasize the union between Christ and his people. He has died for them, and they have died to sin and to self in him. One died, therefore all died, so that now they live for his honor and glory. The one for all motif does not indicate absolute universality, but corporate solidarity between the one and the many. It's telling us that the the actions of a single one, Christ, affect the all whom he represents, but it doesn't say that he represents all without exception. A third text, often marshaled in support of a universal atonement, is 1 Timothy 2, 3-6, which speaks of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. If God desires all people to be saved, and if Christ has given himself as a ransom for all, how can we deny a universal atonement? Well, again, this passage must be read in its context. What was going on when Paul wrote 1 Timothy? You look at chapter 1, verse 3, and you find that certain persons were teaching strange doctrines. Verse 6 says, they were turning from sound doctrine to fruitless discussion. Verse 7 says that these false teachers had ambitions to be teachers of the law. And when you combine that with their, with their speculation regarding genealogies, chapter 1, verse 4, and their forbidding of marriage, along with certain foods, chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, it's difficult to avoid the conclusion that the false doctrine of these false teachers was an exclusive 
Jewish elitism. These were Jewish uh, false teachers like the Judaizers who were insisting that the only real Christians were those who observed the Mosaic ceremonies. So against that backdrop, Paul's universalistic statements throughout the letter, including this passage here in chapter 2, make perfect sense. Paul isn't teaching that Christ died for all without exception. He's saying that contrary to this false teaching that Christ, you know, the Christ people are only the, the exclusive elites who are Judaistic and they, they, they abstain from certain foods and they uh, want to be teachers of the law and they can, they're concerned with genealogies, contrary to that, Christ died for all people without distinction, for Gentiles as well as Jews. Even I, Howard Marshall, who uh, taught an unlimited atonement, so he would disagree with me vigorously on all this, wrote of this passage, the universalistic thrust is most probably a corrective response to an exclusive elitist understanding of salvation connected with the false teaching. The context shows that the inclusion of the Gentiles alongside Jews in salvation is the primary issue here. And so in other words, by speaking of Christ giving himself as a ransom for all, Paul does not intend to say that Christ has stood in the place of and received the punishment due to the sins of every individual who has ever lived without history, throughout history. Rather, he intends to say that the benefits of Christ's sin-bearing substitutionary atonement are not restricted to an elitist sect, but are enjoyed by all kinds of people throughout the whole world even if not every single one of those people throughout the whole world. And that conclusion is only strengthened by the fact that in 1 Timothy 2.1, Paul urges prayers to be made on behalf of all men. By which phrase, he cannot mean that he wants the believers in Ephesus to pray for every single individual who has ever lived without exception. Not only would that require a lot of time, it would also require virtual omniscience because I couldn't even pray for every single individual member of Grace Church without a membership roster and probably a week of nothing to do, let alone every individual on the planet, let alone every individual in history. No, Paul's exhorting the church to pray for all kinds of people, even as he immediately follows that request in verse 2, by defining what he means by all men as kings and all who are in authority. In other words, he's saying, believers, just because your prayers may seem to be wasted on unlikely converts, like the rulers who persecute the church, don't let that deter you. Pray for all kinds of people, even kings and those who are in authority, even the politicians, pray for them. Let no class of persons be excluded from your prayers. That's the thrust. And so just as the all of verse 1 ought to be interpreted as all without distinction, all kinds of people, so also the alls of verses 3, 4, and 6 also ought to be interpreted the same way, that Christ atoned for all kinds of people, people from different social classes, rulers versus the common people, people from different ethnicities, Jews versus Gentiles, and so on. Not all without exception. 
Same conclusion is warranted for Paul's statement in our fourth text, which we'll mention just briefly, Titus 2.11, that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. But the phrase all men is necessarily defined by the immediately preceding list of different classes of people. Titus 2 verse 2 speaks of older men. Verse 3 speaks of older women. Verse 4 speaks of young women. Verse 6 of young men. And verse 9, bond slaves. Since not all men without exception are actually saved right? It says, bringing salvation to all men. Well, since, since all men without exception do not actually have salvation brought to them, it's best to interpret all men as all kinds of men, that is, people in every station of life as he's enumerated in just the immediately preceding verses. A fifth passage has been the subject of much discussion, so we'll spend a little bit more time on this. 1 Timothy 4.10, where Paul describes God as the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Now, proponents of a universal atonement teach that Jesus is the Savior of all people in the sense that He provided for the salvation of all in His universal atonement, but that He's especially the Savior of believers because the benefits of salvation are applied only to them. But there are a number of problems with this interpretation. First, it assumes that the Savior in view here is Christ. But the nearest antecedent of Savior in this verse is the living God, which is a title that Scripture employs to speak of the Father rather than the Son. We see that in a couple of instances in which the Son is distinguished from, quote, the living God, like in Matthew 16, 16, for example, where Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And 2663 is a similar passage. Uh, 1 Timothy 3.15 speaks of the church of the living God, which again is a a reference to to the Father. There is no place in Scripture where the living God refers unambiguously to the Son in exclusion to the Father. Now, obviously, the Son of God is is perfectly equal to the Father. I don't mean to suggest that the Son is not the living God. It's just that when Scripture uses that title, it seems to restrict it to the Father in distinction from the Son. So, first, the living God, who is the Savior of all men in this passage, likely refers to the Father rather than the Son. And when you add that there is uh, no mention of the atonement or the cross in the entire context of 1 Timothy 4, that case becomes stronger. So at the very least, assuming that Christ and or the atonement is in view in 1 Timothy 4.10 is saying more than is self-evident. Second, the universal interpretation reads the concept of potentiality or provision into the text where it simply is not. Nothing in 1 Timothy 4.10 explicitly or implicitly signals that we should see a distinction between a potential provision and an actual application. They have to read that into the text in order to explain how Christ can be the Savior of all men when all men are not eventually saved. It's a notion brought to the text, not read out of the text. 
Third, as a result of that, it reduces the atonement to a potentiality or possibility rather than an efficacious accomplishment. The move from a definite accomplishment to a provision or a making possible is a fundamental change in the nature of the atonement. You've got to see how big of a move that is. The cross is this and not this. That's the heart of Christianity. What has Christ done to save sinners? Has he provided an offer or has he accomplished salvation? And I'm going to say that that move from a definite accomplishment to a provision is unwarranted by Scripture. And if you take it to its logical conclusion, which thankfully not everybody does, but when you do take it to its logical conclusion, it undermines the gospel. Because if I'm not saved by the cross, but only by my response to the cross, I do, Christ has to share some glory with me. Fourth, very related to that, it's, there is a significant problem with saying that God is the Savior of people who were never in fact saved. Okay, it's toying with language to speak of someone as the Savior of people whom he desires to save or he gives the opportunity to eventually be saved, but whom he does not in fact save. Like, I would like God to be my Savior in such a sense that I'm actually saved, right? If God can be my Savior in such a way that I'm not saved... I'm not sure that I'm interested in that kind of savior. Fair? I want a savior who actually saves me. So the death of Christ is held out as a universal provision that makes salvation possible for all without exception. Uh, Oh, sorry, I read that wrong. According to these folks, the death of Christ is held out to be a universal provision that makes salvation possible for all without exception on the condition that they believe, right? That's how it works. But in the case, think about this, in the case of the overwhelming majority of those whose salvation has been provided, quote unquote, God in his providence never sends a word either of the gospel which they must believe to be saved or the save, of the Savior in whom they must trust to be saved. Think, think about how many people throughout the history of the world didn't have a missionary bring the gospel to him, bring the gospel to them, didn't have a local church, didn't have a Christian presence in society. They're part of all without exception, right? And so these are people whom God loves and he's providing the opportunity to be saved because Christ has died for them in a potential sense on the condition that they believe. Believe what? Believe the gospel, the gospel that he decides never to send them to even give them the opportunity to accept or reject it. What does it mean to provide salvation to people on the fulfillment of a condition when the one who must act for them to fulfill that condition refuses to act? And on that basis to be called their savior. No, just as as John Owen says, probably the best line in the death of death and the death of Christ is, is John Owen's little pithy comment, a savior of men not saved is strange. To call God the savior of people not saved is strange. It's gratuitous to call God the savior of people who are not actually saved. It stretches language to its breaking point. You say, okay, fine, well, what's the alternative? Well, 
in the first place, given what we said about God the Father being the living God, the Savior spoken of in this text, and given that there is no explicit mention of the atonement in the near context, it's only reasonable to interpret the term Savior in the only other sense in which the Father is a Savior of all people, namely, that by His providential care, He is the rescuer and preserver of life for all His creatures. If you were to look up the word soter in the Greek dictionary, you would find that rescuer and preserver are equal glosses, and especially in the Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the concept of Savior and deliverer or rescuer are very, very intertwined concepts. And of course, there are plenty of texts which speak of God's goodness to all His creatures. He gives life to all things, 1 Timothy 6.13, Acts 17.25. He's good to all. His mercies are over all His works, Psalm 145.9. He brings sun and rain on the evil and the good, Matthew 5.45. And though all people without exception have sinned against God, God has not immediately visited His justice on them, just like He did with the fallen angels, right? Even the non-elect enjoy a temporary stay of execution, and thus they experience the joys of life in a world infused with the common grace of God. And so the point is, in the uncertainties of this life, even those whom God has not chosen to save are spared from countless natural calamities, would-be car accidents, plane crashes, violent attacks and robberies, or 10,000 other disasters are averted by the providence of God, and many times without people even knowing that they were in any danger, because God is a kind God, and in that sense, He is the Savior of all men. He rescues everyone out of countless calamities and dangers. But in what way is God the Savior, especially of believers then? Well, in the sense that He not only rescues believers from temporal dangers, like He does for all other people, but He extends that rescue and deliverance all the way into eternity by blessing them with spiritual salvation from sin. The entry for Savior in the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament puts it this way, He is, quote, the benefactor and preserver of all men in this life and of believers in the life to come. And then the commentator Homer Kent writes, as applied to unbelievers, God being their savior includes preservation and deliverance from various evils and the bestowal of many blessings during this life. To believers, however, this salvation does not end with earthly life, but goes on for all eternity. And the context supports this temporal, eternal distinction, gives us reason to see physical life alongside eternal life in 1 Timothy 4.10. Look, if you will, at verses 4, 7, and 8. No, I have it up here. That's good. Uh, 1 Timothy 4, 7, and 8, just a couple verses ahead of our verse. It says, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women, but discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So there's a reference to worldliness on the one hand, godliness on the other. 
Then there's bodily discipline on the one hand, godliness again on the other. Then there's mention of what's profitable for the present life on the one hand and what's profitable for the life to come on the other. Those are strong contextual foundations for expecting a comment on how God saves men in both a temporal sense on the one hand, all men, and an eternal sense on the other, especially for believers. So this is Paul's point. Not that Christ has potentially atoned for the sins of all men by dying for all of them, but that the Father, whose beneficence... Oh, there you go. Sorry, I should have kept going. Not potential atonement, but that the Father, whose beneficence extends to all people in His providential preservation and care for them through temporal dangers is the Father whose beneficence extends to His chosen people even into eternity in their spiritual salvation from sin. I want to try that again. It's a lot. It's not a potential atonement for all people by giving them the opportunity to be saved. What's in view here is the Father whose beneficence manifests itself to all people, even His enemies, in His providential preservation and care for them in temporal dangers is the Father whose beneficence extends to His chosen people even into eternity in their spiritual salvation from sin. That's what he's after in 1 Timothy 4.10. Sixth passage is 2 Peter 3.9. And though this text doesn't explicitly speak of the atonement at all, proponents of a universal atonement argue that it reveals a universal saving will in God that contradicts a particular redemption. God wants all people to be saved, all people to come through repentance, and so it doesn't make any sense that He would send Christ to die for only some of them. Well, it just doesn't follow, however, that because God in some sense takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, as He says in Ezekiel 18 and Ezekiel 33, it doesn't follow that Christ has atoned for all without exception. There's much to be said as to why 2 Peter 3.9 doesn't support a universal atonement, but the most decisive answer comes from considering the recipients of Peter's letter and the immediate context of this particular passage. All right, in this very verse, Peter addresses those he's speaking to. The Lord is patient toward you. Well, who were the you? Well, you look at the previous verse in 2 Peter 3.8, he calls them the beloved a term often used of fellow believers in Christ. Or we could go back to the beginning of the letter in chapter 1, verse 1, where Peter addresses the epistle to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter is speaking to the people of God. You can tell that too by 2 Peter 3, 1 says, this is the second letter I'm writing to you. He said, okay, who were the addressees of the first letter? Second Peter, or 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2 says, the, the people of God scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God our Father. So who is he writing to? He's writing to the people of God. He's writing to the elect of God. What does this mean for our verse when he says, God is patient toward you? Peter is saying that the Lord Jesus delays his return because he's patient with those who are his, those whom the Father has given him. 
those whom the father, the, the father has given him and he's died to save, but that he has not, but who have not yet come to faith. Now I have those passages there in John 17 too, that to all whom you, you have given him, he should give eternal life. That's a, that's a necessarily particularizing designation. It's, he actually says, look, Father, you gave the Son authority over all flesh that to those who you have, whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. So I have authority over all flesh, but I'm only going to give eternal life to those whom you've given me. That's the elect. And also in John 10, 16, just after the, the, the shepherd says, I, I know my own, my own know me, I lay my life down for the sheep, Jesus says, I have, present tense, other sheep also, not of this fold, I must bring them. What does Jesus mean, I have these people? How does he have them? Well, they're not saved yet. He's got to bring them, right? The gospel hasn't gone throughout the whole world. He's not brought them in yet. He's saying, I have them presently, just as surely as I have you, because I have them by donation from my father in eternity past. He gave them to me. They're mine. They're the elect. They're my people. And so when, when Peter is talking about talking to the church as the people of God, and he says he's patient toward you, he's saying God is patient toward the people of God, even the ones who haven't come into the fold yet, even the, the ones who are elect but are yet unbelieving. Right? I was an elect unbeliever from birth to 14 years old. I was elect as I've ever, I was ever going to be, but I had not yet come into possession of my salvation. I was a sheep, but needed to be brought into the fold. And I was, in a sense, the people of God, in God's mind anyway, who, to, uh, to, toward whom God had to be patient by delaying the coming of Christ. If Christ returns to earth and destroys his enemies and takes his people to heaven with him before Mike Riccardi gets saved at 15 years old, what happens to me? I perish in my sins because I haven't been put into possession of what Christ has purchased for me. But if, if that's the case, what happens? Christ loses one of the sheep that, Jesus, or that the Father gave to him, which he says can't happen. The point of 2 Peter 3, 9 is, is not saying that God desires the repentance of all people without exception and he's just frustrated by their refusal to receive it. He's saying that God desires the repentance of all those he's given to the Son for whom the Son has died to save, and who therefore must come to faith before God judges the earth and casts unbelievers into eternal punishment. See? God's patient toward you. How is God patient toward the people of God by dying for everybody? It just doesn't fit the flow. It doesn't make any sense of the argument. All right. You might notice that... Uh, all the texts we've addressed so far have the term all in them, but we also hear much about those passages of Scripture that use the term world, because world is just such a seemingly expansive term, right, that many argue to say uh, that Christ takes away the sin of the world, John 1.29, or that the atonement is the result of the love of God for the world, John 3.16, or that Christ is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world, 1 John 2.2, 2 is to say that Christ has paid for the sins of all people without exception who have ever lived in the world. But just like with the term all, world is not self-interpreting either. Just as all can mean all without distinction and not necessarily refer to all people without exception, 
so also world is used in numerous different senses. And in fact, there are at least seven different ways world is used in the writings of the Apostle John alone. It can refer to the created order, the universe at large, the inhabitable earth, every individual who ever lived, an indistinct large number of people, mankind as hostile to God, the world system, and Gentiles in contrast to the Jews. And just like all, there are several passages in which world simply cannot mean every person who has ever lived in the world or even every person alive in the world at a particular time. So first, or John chapter 1, verse 10 says, speaking of Jesus, the world did not know him. But of course, some in the world did know Jesus, right? Two verses later, it says, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. In John 8, 26, Jesus says, the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. But Jesus did not speak to all people alive in the world at the time. He means he, this passage means that he spoke openly to those in Israel without distinction. John 15, 18, and 19, Jesus tells his disciples, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Well, here the world is distinct from the people of Christ, and therefore it's not inclusive of them, which means it's not an absolutely universal designation. And we could keep going. The point is that naked appeals to the so-called plain meaning of world, being all without exception, simply do not satisfy the demands of faithful biblical exegesis. Just like anything else, world needs to be interpreted in its context. And so our seventh text for the morning is John 3.16. I'm sure most of you know it well. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And proponents of a universal atonement claim that by giving His only Son over to a substitutionary death for sinners, God has expressed His love for the entire world, which they believe refers to every individual who will have ever lived on the earth. But nothing in the passage demands that world be interpreted to mean every person who ever lived in the world without exception. And in fact, there's good reason to understand it as people throughout the world without distinction. In the first place, consider the nature of the love spoken of here. God's love, signified by the Greek term agapao, does not consist in mere fond affection or a powerless wish to see the beloved benefited which is what I am convinced most people hear when they read John 3.16. Oh, God just loves you so much. <laughs> he is so just delights in you. He, he, he was so precious to him. He's sitting in heaven, anger, anguishing, writhing to have you with him. And he gave up what was so most, most precious to him so that he could have you. That's the syrupy, man-centered, non-gospel of our age. But that's not what this word means. Divine love consists in the determinative act of God's will to purpose to accomplish the benefit of His beloved. Divine love consists in the determinative act of His will to purpose to accomplish the benefit of His beloved. It's not like, I just love you so much, I want so many good things for you. 
It's I love you so much, I'm going to accomplish good things for you. And that means it is an unmistakable mark of this divine love that its intended aim or determined purpose be brought to fruition. Say another way, Almighty God is not a frustrated lover. His love is always efficacious. It always secures its desired end. Well, if that's true, what is the benefit that God intends to accomplish by loving the world in this way? Well, the text says the intended effect of His love is that all who believe in the Son would not die in their sins, but rather be saved unto everlasting life. The intended benefit that God purposes to accomplish by His love of the world in John 3.16 is nothing other than salvation itself. You see that, don't you? Shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's what He's after. And given that divine love must accomplish its purpose, we are constrained to conclude that therefore none are objects of this divine love except those who finally receive its intended purposed benefit of salvation. And who are they? Who, who does the text say they are? Pas ha pistuon ace autan. All the believing ones or everyone believing in him. So many people make so much of whosoever, whosoever. This is what the text says, all the believing in him. Who are the ones who believe? Who are the believing ones? Only those to whom God sovereignly grants the gift of saving faith. And who are they? They're the elect alone. Does any non-elect person believe the gospel ever? No, because God's the one who gives faith, and God gives faith to whom He chooses. So to say everyone who believes is to say the same thing as the elect. Now, like I say, many believe that the world here refers to the whole of humanity, elect and reprobate, elect and non-elect alike. But I continue to struggle with how it can be an act of love of the love of God to the reprobate for him to send Christ into the world to bring eternal life to all the believing ones. The reprobate, by definition, are those who will never believe. More than that, they're those to whom God has chosen never to grant the gift of saving faith because in His inscrutable wisdom, God has chosen not to save them. We read in Romans 9.22 that there are vessels of wrath fitted for destruction. And in 1 Peter 2.8 that they were appointed to doom. And so we must ask, how can it be an act of love to those who will never believe to send Christ to accomplish the salvation of only those who will believe. That would be to say, God so loved all in such a way that only some of them will enjoy the benefits of His love. But given that divine love always secures its design, those who fail to receive salvation cannot be said to be so loved in this way. 
loved in other ways. The, the sun is, is rising on the just and the unjust. The rain is falling, right? God is good to all his creatures. His mercies are over all his works. We read that before. God, is, God has a, a universal benevolence and beneficence, a love to all creatures. But this love, the love which secures salvation, divine love, which always accomplishes its end, is for some, evidently, and not all. More than that, it's not only that God never grants faith to those he supposedly loves by making them savable through faith, it's that he has so ordered the circumstances of providence that vast numbers of those whom he is said to love by sending Christ to save believers never hear one word of the gospel of Christ. This is what I was saying before. The unevangelized are a serious, serious problem for the doctrine of universal atonement. God, Christ dies to make them save a bowl upon the hearing and believing of a message that in many cases God never sends to them. So John Owen writes, strange that the Lord should so love men as to give his only begotten son for them, and yet not once by any means signify this love to them as to innumerable he does not. That he should love them and yet order things so that this love should be altogether vain and fruitless. Love them and yet determine that they shall receive no good by his love although his love indeed be a willing of the greatest good to them. In other words, what love is it to those who not only never believe the gospel, but who by the providential ordering of God never even hear of the gospel, nor even of the Christ who, uh, whose coming is supposedly designed to be a, a signal demonstration of God's eminent love for them. In my judgment, that interpretation introduces an incongruity into this text that cannot be solved. It makes mincemeat of John's point. So if the world can only refer to the elect throughout the world, why does Jesus say world, right? Like, Mike, why, don't, why didn't Jesus just say the elect? Like, that would have been easier. No, well, the answer is in the context. As Jesus speaks of God's salvation to sinners, he's talking with Nicodemus, whom verse 1 calls a man of the Pharisees and a ruler of the Jews. Right? The Pharisees, like virtually all of Israel in Jesus' day, regarded the Gentiles as unclean and excluded from the covenant promises of God. And as Jesus discusses salvation with this ruler of the Jews, he explains that God's love terminates not only on Israel, but also on men and women throughout the whole world, Gentiles as well as Jews, whom God has chosen to believe, to whom he's chosen to give the gift of faith. And so world here doesn't mean to signify all persons without exception in history. It's meant to signify all peoples without distinction throughout the earth. Some of all kinds, not all of all kinds. The teacher in me like so badly wants to pause for questions. I do this in my class, right? Give me objections, but we must press on. For our eighth text, you can turn with me to 1 John chapter 2, one of the most hotly debated passages in Scripture as it concerns the extent of the atonement. 1 John 2, 1 and 2, where the Apostle John writes to the churches of Asia Minor, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, 
but also for those of the whole world. And people who believe in a universal atonement say, how can you possibly be a particularist while this verse is in the Bible? It's right there. He's the propitiation not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world, all without exception. But that interpretation immediately presents us with a problem. The biblical definition, the biblical term propitiation means the efficacious satisfaction of divine wrath. There is no place in Scripture where the term means anything else, where propitiation is said to have been made and wrath still abides on those for whom propitiation is said to have been made. Not a single place. Propitiation means to satisfy, to appease. If Christ efficaciously satisfies divine wrath for the sins of all people without exception, what's that mean? Hell's empty, right? Everyone's going to heaven. But we know that that's not an option. We know that the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it, Matthew 7, 13. So propitiation means satisfaction of divine wrath. If there's anybody in hell, there's wrath not satisfied. Now, those who reject particular redemption agree. They are not genuine universalists. But that means that Jesus cannot be, if we're just respecting the definitions of words, he cannot in fact be the propitiation for the sins of all without exception, because there are some sins against which God is angry for eternity, and, out, and upon whom, which sinners, upon which sinners, he exercises his wrath for eternity. So it's just in point of fact, Jesus has not been the propitiation for the sins of all without exception, so long as hell exists. Now, it's at this point that the interpreter of Scripture has two options. First, you could do what the universal redemptionist does, and you can modify the meaning of propitiation. One professor claims we ought to understand the term propitiation here to speak of a universal potentiality. Christ has potentially propitiated for all, but that just means he hasn't actually propitiated for anybody, right? To potentially do something is to not do that thing. Indulge me, would you? Would, would every last one of you please potentially stand up? <laughs> exactly, right? Nobody stood up because there's no such thing as a potential action. You either do something or you do it. I, I mean, hey, potentially open the fridge, potentially turn off the lights. <laughs> you know, there's no... It's not doing. If you do it, you didn't potentially do it. You did it. So Christ did not potentially satisfy God's wrath. He actually satisfied God's wrath. Another theologian claims that Christ's propitiation... Don, you got up actually. You're not supposed to stand up actually. Sorry. That's right. They went out from us. Sorry, I love Don. He knows I love him. Another theologian claims that Christ's propitiation makes sins forgivable. But if Christ's death only makes sins forgivable, what actually forgives sins? A lot of times the answer is, well, our faith. Well, is faith our Savior? Was faith crucified for you? 
No, Christ is our Savior. He saves through faith, yes, but He's the Savior. Ephesians 1.7 says, Forgiveness is found in the Savior's blood, not the sinner's faith. In Him we have redemption through His blood, comma, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Redemption is synonymous with the forgiveness of sins, and that redemption is accomplished through His blood, not through our faith. Still another commentator says the verse means that the death of Christ is sufficient to deal with the sins of the whole world, but his sacrifice does not become effective until people believe. So what's that mean? Except that Christ's atonement is ineffective apart from the faith of those sinners he's trying to save. The problem with all these proposals is that not a single occurrence of the terms for propitiation indicates that the atonement ought to be understood as potential, provisional, or possible. There's no exegetical basis for interpreting propitiation to being anything other than the perfectly efficacious satisfaction of divine wrath. So what's the second option? Well, rather than reinterpreting propitiation in a way never suggested anywhere else, it's to insist that propitiation means what it always means, but that the phrase, the whole world, must not refer to everyone who has ever lived or will live in the world, as in many places it does not. And particularists interpret the whole world here to mean the elect of God scattered throughout the whole world, all without distinction rather than all without exception. So John is not saying Christ potentially satisfies God's wrath for the sins of both elect and non-elect. He's saying, Christ efficaciously satisfied the wrath of God against the sins of both the believers to whom he's presently writing and the believers in other areas of the world who were alive at that time, as well as the elect who would become believers as time progressed. I talked about John 10, 16 before. I have other sheep. They're going to believe in me through the message. You say, okay, well, it's fine for you to say that. Are there any exegetical reasons for that? option, that's solution. Yes, there are at least four. The first is a contextual reason. In 1 John, John is writing to believers who are being harassed by false teachers who were teaching such heresies like Jesus didn't really come in the flesh, chapter 4, verse 2, and believers can reach an exalted state of sinless perfectionism, chapter 1, verse 8. These were the teachings of a heretical sect called the Gnostics, And though Gnosticism wasn't full-blown until the second century, the seeds of their heretical doctrines were apparently already present in the first century church. Well, another tenet of Gnosticism was the teaching that the key to true spirituality lay in a secret knowledge possessed only by the elite. These false teachers in Asia Minor were assaulting the church by claiming that they alone had this elite knowledge and that believers were somehow second-class Christians because they didn't have it. This is why in John 2.27, 1 John 2.27, he says, the believers have no need for anyone to teach them since they have the Holy Spirit abiding in them, right? Because these heretics claim they had the true knowledge and the regular Joes needed to listen to them or they were missing out. And so as John encourages these believers who were tempted to despair because they find themselves not to be sinless as the false teachers claim to be, When he writes concerning the extent of Christ's atoning work, he repudiates all vestiges of exclusivism and speaks of the Savior's Savior's accomplishment in the most universalistic of terms. 
Jesus is not the propitiation for our sins only, whether of the proto-Gnostic elites rather than the, the common Christians like them, whether the sins of the churches in Asia Minor rather than the, the sins of the believers scattered throughout the whole world, or whether the sins of believers alive in that day rather than the sins of those who would eventually come to faith in Christ. No, Jesus is the propitiation for the, the sins of God's elect people scattered throughout the whole world in all times and in all places. So the reason for the universalistic language isn't to teach that Christ died for all without exception, but that he died for all without distinction, all kinds and classes of people throughout the whole world, contrary to the claims of the false teachers. A second reason is lexical. There are several instances throughout the scripture where the phrase the whole world must be interpreted as something less than all without exception. I go to a couple places here, but let me just go to 1 John 5, 19, because it's the most conclusive. And it's the very same letter, right? We're talking about the same letter as the verse in question. And there, John says, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Well, wait a second. If the whole world must always refer to all people without exception, does that mean the apostle John himself and the believers he was writing to lay in the power of Satan? say, well, maybe they got to live in Satan's world, right? So in some sense, they're in his power. No, because in the verse immediately previous in 1 John 5, 18, John says, we know that no, that no one who is born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him and the evil one does not touch him. And the next phrase is the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So the whole world must exclude these believers who are kept by the one born of God whom the evil one cannot touch. You see, there are cases in which the phrase whole world simply cannot mean all without exception, everyone without exception in the world. And therefore, it is not out of accord with sound principles of exegesis to seek another interpretation for the phrase the whole world in 1 John 2, 2, especially where it would conflict with the biblical definition of propitiation. All right, I've got a conflict between whole world and propitiation. I need a reason to explain whole world as something other than all without exception. Do I have good reason? Yes, I do. I've got a, an, an, an explicit use of the same phrase in the same letter that can't mean all without exception. Aha, all right. Third reason is syntactical. Now, interestingly, there is at least one other text in the writings of the Apostle John that fits this very same syntactical formula in John 1 John 2, 2, and it is John 11, verses 49 to 52. John reports Caiaphas's prophecy about Jesus' death, namely that one man would die for the people and the whole nation not perish. And then he says something in John 11, 51 and 52 that is almost syntactically identical to 1 John 2, 2. Note the five elements here. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather in together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. That's a comment concerning Christ's atonement, the word for, a particular group, we can call it X, the phrase, and not for X only, but also and then a larger group. We see the exact same formula in 1 John 2, 2. You put them side by side, and 
He himself is the propitiation, comment concerning Christ's atonement, the word for a particular group than our sins, uh, not X only, but also, not for ours only, but also, and then a, a smaller group, the, or the larger group, rather, the whole world. The first four elements of that syntactical formula are identical in both passages. The only difference is in that fifth element, the children of God who were scattered abroad and the whole world. But despite the formal variation, the syntactical parallel from the same author writing at about the same time, about the same topic, gives us good reason to see the fifth element in both, both verses as referring to the same concept, especially when to conclude otherwise would undo the definition of the term propitiation that we've established is consistently defined throughout Scripture. The whole world in 1 John 2.2 refers to the same group of people as the children of God who were scattered abroad in John eleven fifty two, which is to say the elect of God throughout the whole world and not all without exception. One more reason, and this is actually really cool, so hang in there with me for five more minutes. We, we might call it a principial reason, and by that I mean the point that John is making. Interpreting the whole world here as all without exception makes absolute nonsense of the point of John's passage overturns the entire flow of his argument. What do I mean? John's writing to comfort sinning believers who are tempted to be discouraged by their own sinfulness in the face of false teaching, which says, we don't sin anymore, and you're not the elite until you stop sinning. Verse 1, my little children, even if these false teachers tell you that sinless perfectionism is possible, I'm telling you that even if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father. And he is the propitiation for our sins. He says, your failings may be many, but Jesus Christ, the righteous, has fully extinguished the wrath of God against your sins by his propitiatory death. And now he presently pleads as our advocate on the basis of that perfectly efficacious propitiation. He pleads the merits of that sufficient sacrifice in the throne room of heaven. There is no more wrath for you, believer, John tells the church. There is no more wrath for you, even though you still sin, because Christ is your propitiation. He is your satisfaction of wrath. That is glorious. But if what he means by the very next phrase is that Christ is the propitiation for the sins of all without exception, for the reprobate as well as the elect, why wouldn't these believers reply, well, so what if he's my propitiation then, John? If he's the propitiation for the sins of those who eventually go to hell, what comfort is that to me? That means I can still go to hell. It makes absolutely no sense to console sinning believers, assuring them of their pardon and sure hope of heaven on the ground of a propitiation that Christ has also made for those who will suffer the wrath of God for eternity. And so Owen asks, Will that be any refreshment unto me, which is common unto me with them that perish eternally? Is this not a pumice stone rather than a breast of consolation? It totally undoes the entire point of John's argument. He's your propitiation. There's no wrath, uh, but there's wrath left for them. Right? I'm not saying he's their propitiation. I'm saying he's the propitiation of the elect, God's people scattered throughout the whole world in all times and all places. And so if whole world in 1 John 2, 2 means all without exception, the term propitiation has to be given a meaning it's never given anywhere else, and John's argument has to be reduced to nonsense. 
We have good contextual, lexical, syntactical, and principial reasons to read whole world as all without distinction, the elect throughout the whole world rather than all without exception. All right, and we've run out of time. And the reality is there's, there's more, there would be more to consider. Colossians 1.20 is a key text. 2 Peter 2.1 is a key text. Uh, I really wish we had time. I did work through those in that sermon series that I mentioned at the beginning of the lecture. Um, I dealt with Colossians 1 in our sermon on reconciliation and with 2 Peter 2.1 in our sermon on redemption. If you're interested, you can download those messages. Like I said before, if you're really interested, uh, you, can, you can get this book. Uh, it has, the bookstore has it. Um, I've got it for a little bit cheaper while supplies last. So if you really want it, you can see me. Um, but uh, if you're saying, I, okay, that was good, but that was not enough, you're weird like me. Um, but that's who the book is for. So um, at the end of the day, just to put a bow on it, at the end of the day, when the so-called universalistic texts are interpreted in their context, and when they're interpreted consistently with the rest of Scripture's teaching concerning the nature and design of the atonement, no text genuinely teaches that Christ died to atone for the sins of all without exception. And with that, without that, rather, there are no exegetical or theological grounds for seeing a universal extent of the atonement. And in that way, the doctrine of particular redemption is vindicated. Let me pray and send you on your way. Father, we do rejoice and we rest in in a a redemption that's been accomplished for us that is perfect, that does not leave anyone for whom it was accomplished outside of its saving grasp. And we, we are so thankful to be within that grasp that you have set your love upon us from before the foundation of the world, that you've given us to Christ, that you have given Christ to us to be our mediator. And we, we take amazing, great consolation in the fact that this is not something that you've done for everybody, because it means that we've been given something that we don't deserve, and we're privileged above others for no reason in ourself, simply because you have chosen to love us. We were rightly condemned with the rest of humanity. We were rightly left in our blindness, in our rebellion, in our ultimately fruitless life that would end in judgment. And yet you have sent your precious son to shed his precious blood for one such as us. We are bound to the dust, and we pray that as we defend the integrity of that saving accomplishment on the cross, that we do it simply because we, tr- we treasure that salvation, that we, we go to the lengths we go to, not, as I said at the beginning, to exclude some and to exalt over them, but to be bound to the dust and praise you with eyes filled with tears and hearts filled with wonder and worship that, that you should ever deign to save such as we are. I pray that you would protect the integrity and the efficacy of, of your son's accomplishment on our behalf in the minds of your people, that we not think of it in a way that you have not revealed it, no matter how popular uh, that false uh, understanding uh, is in this contemporary world. I pray that you would uh, make us preachers of this gospel to all whom we come in contact with, telling them of the Savior's love for sinners and that everyone is welcome to trust in Christ and receive salvation. And if they do, they will know that that the Father has chosen them from before the foundation of the world. Pray that you would cause sinners to be saved, even through the preaching of the word throughout this campus and later today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.